Every Christian is free in Christ. We know that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But what exactly does that look like? What does it mean and how do I use my body? How do I use my words in the areas that are what we consider not commanded by God nor forbidden in God in that free area? The Apostle Paul talks today in 1 Corinthians in a number of sections about what that can mean for the Christian and what that means, especially when we talk about our bodies. This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, January 15, 2012. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, I thought I'd put this in just in case you were going to put in some, uh, drop this into the offering plate a little bit later on. If you had a chance to look at some of the grow groups, which we're signing up this week, and this month, signing up for grow groups, if you haven't had a chance to do that, look through the list, not during the sermon while you're waiting for the offering plate to get to you or something, take a look at that list, and there's a couple options. Ones are based off the sermon, so we have one that's right in the meadows, and then also one over in Parker area. And then the other one, which meets uh, also in the meadows, is a Bible basics class, which is what does the Bible teach, and then in turn, what do we teach as a church? So if you're wondering, like, what does the Bible teach on uh, marriage? What does the Bible teach on divorce? What does it teach on all these other things? We cover all those things in that class. So this is something I recommend people take about every five years or so, um, even less. If you have to renew your driver's license less, it makes sense as a Christian you go through some of the, the things. So take a look. If you can fill that out, even if you um, took a class last year or you were in it, please fill this out and just mark which of those classes you'd like to be in. That'd be helpful to us, and we'll follow up this week. I'm pretty excited. I'm going to use some big terms, and as I said, it's a little bit. this is going to be a little bit more challenging. If you talk about ease of understanding when you, when you preach, I think some of the Old Testament narratives or the narratives of Jesus are some of the easier ones because it's mostly a story, and then you're saying, like, what's the application? A parable, for example, I think is pretty easy because you have a story that Jesus told, and then most of the time you've heard it a number of times, and then you just make a singular point. Here's what we're trying to get at. More challenging as you start to get to uh, touchier subjects, which happens when you get into the book of 1 Corinthians. Why are we even in the book of 1 Corinthians? Here's where the big terms come in. Uh, There's a term called the pericope, which I've told you before, lectionary, which just means there's scheduled readings. These are historic scheduled readings, and they go in like a three-year cycle. Once in a while, you have lexio continuum, which means, another big word, that's going to be it for the rest of the day. Um, Once in a while, you get a number of readings from one particular book. And I try and plan out the preaching in June, and I saw this. I thought, this is pretty cool because there's a connection between all these readings in Corinthians, all of them talking about what does it mean to be a Christian. And the challenge as you talk about specific things is, in general, as church, we talk about what do you expect when you become a member of our church. We'd say, well, we expect um, an hour of worship a week. We expect you to be in a grow group. We expect... Um, service either here or outside our doors, support, because that's how our church functions. That's pretty simple. And all of us, I think, feel some sense, like um, whenever we talk about this, I should be more pure in my worship, or I should be more dedicated in my growth, and things like that. Every one of us feels that way. When you get into the book of Corinthians, now we start to hit specific commands of God. And this gets a little bit challenging because of this. Um, Personality. You are built different than I'm built. Um, If you look around, you're built different than the people next to you, which means when you talk about things that are easy for you and things that are hard for you, um, they're going to be different. So you may have something that's, someone says, hey, I'm I'm a morning person, and you think, how in the world can anyone get up before noon? They're somewhat built that way, so it's really not that big a deal. And usually what happens if someone has no problem getting up, 
They look at everyone else who doesn't get up and say, these people are lazy slackers, and I can't believe anyone would ever be like that. Well, maybe that lazy slacker is really good with their money, but the person who gets up early is not. So then the lazy slacker says, I can't believe anyone would mishandle their money. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And this person is saying, well, everyone has struggles with that. So what am I getting at? As we talk about specific sins or specific struggles and specific commands, some may be easy for you and are a total non-issue at all. And some might be very, very difficult. Be very careful that you don't look at the commands that are easy for you and say these are the most important to God and the ones that are hard to say God doesn't really care about these because God cares about all his commands. And what you're really trying to do is not stop kind of looking at other people and just say where do I stand with God? We're going to be doing that today in Corinthians and I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, I had some cool slides but in the transfer for some reason the JPEG didn't go over so Imagine right there a picture of Corinth. Does anyone know where Corinth is, at least what country it's in? It still exists. It's in Greece. So it's in Greece. Back in the day, this was the place to be in Greece. So Greece kind of looks like this. And then there's like a lump underneath it, and it just touches barely. This is not a good picture. Okay, it looks kind of like this. Down in this lower part is Sparta. You have to say Sparta like that. There's no other way to say it. So down in this lower part is Sparta. But if you're traveling and you go around this lower part in the Mediterranean Sea, it's kind of dangerous. So what they would do is they'd shoot in, I think you call it an an isthmus. Is that how you say it? Yeah, I'm not going to repeat that. I'll just assume I got it right the first time. They would take their goods, they'd shoot it into this long thing, and then they would drop off their goods in Corinth. They'd ship them just off a little bit of land, and they'd catch another one on the other side and ship it right over to Athens. So Athens now is like over 2 million people. Corinth, they estimate back then, was over 200,000 people. For at that time, without magic plumbing and everything that we have today, is massive. So it's this massive, rich, huge city. And it had all these cultural ideas. They had uh, wealthy people, all kinds of gifts. Even the church is pretty gifted. That doesn't mean it didn't have any problems. So if you've ever read the book of 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, you're like, man, the Apostle Paul's kind of punchy. Do you ever read that and you're like... His tone almost sounds sarcastic at times, and you're like, man. Well, it works like this. He founded the church. He went there personally again to try and straighten things out, and he went and sent a letter. So we know that from 1 Corinthians 5. He already sent a letter to try and fix things, and it's not working. So just like with your kids, uh, you might give them the look at first, but then the look becomes a little more serious. That's kind of what's happening with the Apostle Paul. He kind of gave them the look and said, hey, let's straighten things out. And they pretty much said, at least from the tone of uh, where he's coming from, hey, Paul, what do you know? What do you know about all this stuff? So Paul says, here's what I know, and it's from the Lord. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and uh, Paul's in the process of straightening out a number of things, and specifically we're talking about license or uh, Christian freedom. Do we have Christian freedom? Yes. As Americans, you've got to say, yes, I love Christian freedom. This is the best. Christian freedom is awesome. It means you can eat whatever food you want. It means you can do all kinds of cool things. So there's a word. I've got to start this, sorry. Here's my last weird word. Uh, adiaphora, which is a Greek word, which means uh, kind of like the lesser things, meaning God did not talk. When we use this in terms of Scripture, God didn't talk about it. So the question would be, can I go to the cherry cricket and eat a big burger. Now, I think that should be in there under like the 11th commandment or something like that. So it should be in there, but it's not. So what do I have to do as a Christian? 
I have to decide, should I eat this burger? And is there any kind of guidelines that determine in things that aren't commanded or forbidden in Scripture? How, how do I even determine that? How do I use, for example, my body now that I'm Christian? How do I, what food can I eat? What can I drink? What can I do? What do I do with my time? What do I do with my money? All of these, or many of these, are in the realm of Christian freedom. So the Apostle Paul is going to give you a couple guidelines. So to the people, he tells them this. The quotes, and I think the NIV did a good job with this. Everything is permissible for me. So that's what they're saying. Hey, everything's permissible for me. And then they quote again um, the second one, verse 13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. So that's what the people are saying. And this is kind of the, their mantra. Hey, everything's okay for me. Food's for the stomach. Stomach's for the food. That's true when it comes to the stomach. So, Paul says, well, let's just put some parameters. This is just like an umbrella when you're talking about adiaphra. So, if everything is permissible, I got Christian freedom, freedom from death, the devil, and the world. But not everything is beneficial. So, as you look at the cherry cricket burger, I shouldn't advertise just for the cherry cricket. But, so, you get this burger. You have to decide, is this beneficial for me? Definitely. Yeah, this is, this is okay, I think. Unless, of course, you have some severe heart things, then you have to make some choices and say, is this actually good for me or not? So that's why you don't want to get any testing. So that's, did this pass the test? Yes. So everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So this is parameter number two. As I make choices as a Christian, is it beneficial for me? If it's not, you'd say, well, this doesn't really make sense. What happens, though, if, you know, this is probably beneficial, can I become a slave to it? Have I become a slave to this particular thing? Is this controlling me? Even though I'm free to have a glass of alcohol, has this got to a point where this is starting to control me? Then in my Christian freedom, it might make some sense that I don't. Or if you start going to the cherry cricket three times a day, you'd say, this is, I don't have a gainful employment anymore, and I'm stealing and doing things just to get burgers. Now, this is starting to, what, make you a slave to something. So Paul is trying to explain to the people, as you make these choices, you do have freedom. This is good. I love this stuff. We can eat shellfish and do all these other cool things, but is it beneficial? And are you becoming a slave to it? What happens if it passes that test? You're like, okay, we're good to go. In the people's mind, it had already passed this test. And they said, well, if I can eat everything, and how do you know that you're, uh, you want to eat something? This isn't that tricky. You feel hungry, all right? So you feel hungry, you think, I should go eat something. You go eat, you've got a world of choices. Now, what happens if I have other natural cravings or desires? Can I fulfill those? Can I fulfill those and be in good conscience with God? Because it's a natural thing. So if I feel um, like I want to punch someone in the nose, can I do that? Well, no, we'd say, well, God says don't do violence. Somehow, and I'm not sure how the wires got crossed or something like that, the people in Corinth, or at least there was people in Corinth that said this. Okay, so if my stomach is for food, and as Paul explained, it's going to be destroyed. My stomach's for food and I can make all these food choices, what happens if I have sexual desires? Can I fulfill those? They argued, well, everything's permissible for me. This is a natural craving. It would only make sense. And this got to the point where we're going to get to in a second that this gets to temple prostitutes and things like that. Their world is not that much different from ours. 
are there prostitutes available then? Yes. Are there now? Yes. Is there um, lewd things that you just walk if you go to the market or go to the store? Yes. Is the same thing here? Yes. They didn't have TV, but they had other forms of entertainment. So it was just where we're at now. So Paul, trying to explain to the people, says, listen, everything is permissible, but is this beneficial? Are you being mastered by something? Food is for the stomach. It's going to be destroyed, but God will destroy them both. But tell you what, your stomach is made for food. Uh, have you ever settled for anything? I talked about it a little bit with the kids, and I think it went right past them, but that's like 50% of my children's lesson. I, so have you ever tried to settle for something? You normally won't settle for anything unless you know that there's a difference, and that's what I was trying to show the kids. Um, if there's only one snowblower on the whole planet, you go to the store, you buy the snowblower, do you feel like you settled? Like you get home and you're, trying to, you're like, I can't believe I settled for this thing. This is kind of a marketing thing, though, isn't it? Like, you go to the Home Depot, and, and I've explained this before. If it comes in one size, a guy doesn't want it. Because you go to the Home Depot, and they have shop backs, and they have the ones that will, um, like, suck the paint off your car. And then they have, like, this tiny little one. I don't think they sell any of those. I don't think anybody buys the Wimpy Vacuum. They, I think it's a fake one. There isn't even a box to buy it. They, they, there's, like, four levels. Why? So that guys can come and look at it and say, I don't want to settle for that. I mean, that, that probably won't even pick up sawdust. I need this one, right? The same thing happens if you ever bought, like, a mattress, right? It, you, there should only be, like, one mattress, but you go to the mattress store, and there's, like, 7,200 mattresses. There's no, they can't cross-compare any store because they rebrand them and all this other stuff. And then you go to the way end, and they say, hey, you can try out the nicest one, right? And it's, like, $10,000 or something. You just, just lay on that just for a second. You know, take your time. Then they're like, why don't you try what? Oh, you're trying to save money. That's fine. Here's the other option we have. You know, the fabric doesn't match, which they do on purpose. And it's actually made out of plastic. And they only sold like six of these, which somehow were supplied in all of my dorm rooms as a kid. I don't know how that worked. But I got the worst mattresses ever, right? So where does that come to? You say, I got to find something in between, right? Settling. A friend of mine's been looking for shoes for over a year. Because, um, this is going to sound strange, but he can't take a shoe with a heel. So not like heels like you're thinking, like heels like this. So he can't take that. It gets to his back. He's a pastor and he stands. And I just brought this up as we were talking about it. He's been looking for a year. So now he wears tennis shoes while he's looking for these shoes that are flat, that are appropriate. And you're like, that's a little over the top, right? The only way you know you've settled is if you have something to compare it to. And settling, I think, is about the most life-draining idea on the whole planet. Imagine writing an anniversary card to your husband or your wife, and you're like, happy anniversary, I'm so glad I settled for you 10 years ago. <laughs> P.S., I'm sorry this is a birthday card, but I just settled for this one instead of finding an actual anniversary card, right? I mean, could you imagine that? Is that inspiring? This is what the people of Corinth were doing. This is what they're doing. When God says, I have made you to delight in me. I have made your body to delight in me. I have made you to find joy. I have, why did Christ come, it says in John, that you may have life and have it to the full. God has made you so you can totally enjoy life and delight it. Some people think as a Christian, you've got to walk around like a monk and totally be um, disappointed and sad. No, God says, here is where true delight is. Just read the Psalms once. Just read them through the light in this world. The problem as Christians is that we're settling. And that's exactly what they did in Corinth. 
is there a thrill to sex? And at this point, I'm very glad the kids are up in rock kids. But is there a thrill to sexual? Yes, there's a thrill. As someone said, there is, um, I won't use the word, but there's a powerful motivation for bad behavior. There's a payoff when you do this. But is this the delight God wants you to have in this world, or does he have something better in mind? He has something better in mind. So the people of Corinth are struggling with this. They're trying to find out what do we do, and Paul tries to say this, and I'm going to paraphrase some of these as we click through. Their argument was, my stomach is made for food. It's just a bodily thing. It's going to be destroyed, right? I mean, what's the big deal? My body is made for sex. I should be able to use it, right? That seems legitimate. Let me ask you this. What is the primary function of your stomach? That's it. Is it used for anything else? I store things. I mean, is there like little pockets, kangaroo pockets in there? I, I can't think of anything else. Now the medical guy, uh-oh, I, I, I'm not going to make eye contact with anyone in the medical field in case there's like 12 different uses for your stomach. As far as I know, there is not. There is not. So we have one use. So God has created the stomach to digest food. So would it, would it make sense that God would say you shouldn't eat food? No, this would be, this wouldn't make sense at all. God has made my stomach for food. I should be able to use it for food. Has God made you for sex? Yes. I mean, the primary organ, which is your brain and other organs involved, uh, man and woman, this was God's intention. This is why he, one of the reasons he created you. This is who you are. This is the part of the, the design God has made for you to enjoy and find pleasure in sex. So, wouldn't it make sense? Wouldn't it make sense that that means we should go and do whatever way we find it pleasurable? I eat the food that I find pleasurable. God says that's cool. What's the difference? Primarily, you're not made as a sex tool. That's not your primary function. That is not why God made Adam and Eve. It's one of the main ones we'll talk to in a second. But he says, let me talk to you about this for a second, guys and gals. Food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. This is not why God built you. You are built for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, let me tell me something else about your body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. If you think your body is just some throwaway thing, that you're just going to use for a while and it doesn't really matter because you have your body forever. God intends, no matter what happens at your death, to raise your body to give it to you forever. So it matters, as Paul is trying to say, it matters what you do with it. So God is going to raise you from the dead. Do you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Are you aware of this? This isn't just some plaything on the side, but the body you have through Christ in faith is connected to him in a miraculous way, which is a pretty awesome thing. We're part of the body of believers, as he tries to explain. Can you imagine taking the members of Christ, I'm paraphrasing some, taking the members of Christ and uniting them with a prostitute? Can you imagine that? And he asks us the same thing, I think. Can you imagine using the, the body that God has given you to try and find attention with other people sexually. Does that make sense? Does it make sense to use your body to try and attract someone else at the office who's not your spouse? 
Does that make sense? Does it make sense to um, look at pictures of other people's bodies which are made to be materialistic and objects? Does that make sense? Does it make sense to surf the net when other people are around and look at these naked pictures and other activities of people? Does this make sense? And people defiling themselves, does that make sense? No. Do you know that when you... And he explains a little bit more. Let me tell you something else he says. When someone unites themselves with a prostitute, he's one in body. I mean, you know this from Scripture. In marriage, he says the two become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in the Lord. Does this make sense? I think if we're honest, as I heard someone say, if you're over 150, I mean under 150, you probably have some issues with sexual sins. I think this is one of the broad umbrella sins that affects people. Across the board, you say, well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't affect older people. Look at the news. Who are the people going to jail sometimes? This is something that has infiltrated the whole world. And if you're honest with yourself, you have to say, I have struggles with sexual sins. Hands down. The question is, what are you going to do about it? God didn't make you for these things. God has made you for him. To find delight in him. To find joy in his presence, not these other cheap thrills. If you're going to start, and I think it starts with a simple plan that says, God, I am so sorry I settled for other pleasures instead of you. Help me delight in you again. Help me find joy in you again. Help me push these other things away and see where real satisfaction is. I just read a book, um, just finished it, called Change Anything. Has anyone read that book? Carrie uh, Patterson, I think, or uh, I can't think of his name. The, the researchers, I think, out of Idaho or Utah, those states blend together for me for some reason. I don't, they start with vowels. So they're, they're researchers there, and they, they wrote this book called Change Anything. And I thought this was pretty, someone recommended it, and I thought, and I'm not in particular. Uh, if you're, I do recommend it. It's a secular book. If you're trying to stop smoking, you're trying to work out, you're trying to lose weight or do something like that, you should read the book. It's really pretty good. But here's the gist of it. Sometimes we think as Christians, okay, I struggle with these sins. I wake up, I say a prayer, and uh, that's going to take care of it. And then you fall into trouble, which is the willpower trap. That's how they explain it in the book. So um, if you're trying to stop sexual sins, you say, I'm, not gonna, I'm cold turkey, like 15th floor. I'm in the basement right now. Um, I'm going to jump right to the top. I'm going to be as pure as you can be. I'm going to be like Tim Tebow, and it's going to be incredible, right? So you go here, and then the first fall off the wagon, then you feel so lousy about yourself, you go into this bender for like two days. The same thing happens with food. You're like, I'm going to eat better. Monday morning comes, because every Monday we say that. This Monday, I'm going to eat better. You go to the office, it's Rochelle's birthday, and you're like, man, it's, she brought the cake. She even made it. Um, okay, I'll have one little piece. And then you feel so terrible about yourself that instead of just saying, you know what, okay, I'm going to just limit it right there, you go on like this um, sympathy depression bender, and you eat like all the candy available in the whole office, and you have like your secret stash under your desk, right? And you're sneaking this stuff out, and you're eating it, and you're like, okay, because tomorrow I'm going to start fresh. What they explain in the book is um, that's kind of a narrow view of where issues come from, which is, uh, it's a narrow view where the problems are coming from. If I want to change my life, that they said there's personal, social, and I'm going to explain this where this goes with today, personal, social, and structural. 
I use the example of eating better. So personally, I have the desire to do it, but what happens if I actually don't know what foods are good? Have you ever watched The Biggest Loser? And they have like these tests, like what's good and what's bad, and you're like, no, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad. They have no idea, right? Because they just don't have the tools. So one is personal motivation, and you even have the ability to know what the difference is. Two is socially. If you hang out with people who eat way too much, and they say this happens at offices, they they, like study this. If your office eats a lot, you're going to eat a lot because you don't even know it, because you all expand at the same rate, right? I work alone, so I'm stuck. You know, this is, it's all my fault. But um, so this is where it comes socially. Who are you hanging out with, and what kind of um, encourage, encouragement do they have? Are they the ones inviting you for more food, or are they the ones who are saying, you know what, let's um, make better choices? Okay, so that's socially. And the other one is structurally, which is saying if you decide to keep your candy basket to be nice to everybody on your desk, that's probably a structural issue, and you're going to have some difficulties trying to, uh, you know, stay close to this diet where I'm not going to eat any candy, right? Uh, there's a couple other things. Most of these times, you don't have problems all the time, but there's certain points during the day. I thought that was an interesting point. Like 2 o'clock, you're, you're done, um, and you get the shakes like I do for coffee at 4. I'm like, man, I, I could go for a coffee. And within like 10 minutes, it's 4 o'clock, which is really strange. But So this is the kind of things you're struggling with, right? Does this apply? And, and what his point in the book was, and I don't want to get all psychological on you, his point in the book is if you have six forces pushing against you to go in the wrong direction, and all you have is your little willpower saying, okay, I'm going to do it, you've totally underestimated the enemy, and you have no chance to win. How does that work with sexual sins? Why is this more difficult? Did God make you to gamble? Like, you come out of the womb and your arm goes like this for, and you're like, I don't know, this is just natural. No, I mean, you can gamble, but are you made for gambling? No. So that's why I think there's a way smaller percentage of people, and is the payoff for gambling 100% like it is with sexual sins? No. So now you're seeing some of the issues. Why is this an issue in people's lives? DNA. You, God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. This is part of your DNA. This is one of the commands God gave Adam and Eve. I don't know why he had to command it, but he had to command it and say, this is what I expect of you. So your DNA, biology, you know your hormones when you're 12 to 16 go up 600%. And as I heard a guy explain, he's like, it's not like an IV drip. It's like a werewolf. You know, like suddenly like, whoa, what happened there? Um, as you talk to people and you meet people in this age group. So your, your DNA, your biology, now start talking about some of those social influences. It could be a family thing, and maybe that's a non-issue. Um, they talk about that. Maybe your dad had pornography stashes, or, or they had this weird agreement with your parents, and who knows what's going on, or what television shows your parents watched. That affects your view of sex. So now you have social things. Who do you hang out with, and what movies do they want to watch? How much does that affect your view of things? The media, are you going to get encouragement if you're saying, you know what, I want to be pure and follow the Lord from the media? Like just flipping through the movies, like most of them have this great, most of them are like fireproof. I mean, that's like one out of 2,000 movies, right? So this is not going to happen. So you've got media against you, you've got your biology against you, you've got your DNA against you, you've got environment against you for some people. In the devil, they say the devil made you do it. Does the devil make you do anything? No. Does the devil provide opportunity? All the time. So spiritually, there's a thing, and even our human nature, our, our sinful flesh is strong. Never think that the sinful self inside you is this weak little thing. 
Not at all. Your sinful self is strong and resilient. Martin Luther said you have to drown your old Adam, but it's a good swimmer, right? I mean, you drown it and you're like, gone. And then the next morning you're like, come on, right? This is how it functions as a human being. So we have all these things pushing against us. And if you're going to wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be more pure today with a prayer and go along your same path, you're inevitably going to fail. You need to look at how you were built. You need to look at your environment. You need to look at the company you keep. You need to look at the shows you watch. You need to look at um, what time you're, the people you interact with at the office. All these things are, are factors. And why do I bring this up? Paul says, All other sins man commits are outside his body, but he who commits sexual sins against his own body Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? This has nothing to do with working out, by the way, even though Vic Tanny says otherwise. Nothing to do with that. Instead, you are not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. All the sins you could line up, I mean, if you're honest, all the sins of thought and word and deed, you you just line these up. You can just line them up. And Jesus saw those sins, and he says, I'm willing to pay the price to buy you back. You're not some piece of trash. You're not a piece of dirt that feels filthy because you've done these things. God says, I paid it. I'm buying you back, and I have something better in mind for you. I have true delight for you. I have joy for you to delight in me. What do you do if you're struggling? I mean, it starts with confession and a plan, and I know this that there's a whole world of people who have struggled and there's people who've been in the exact same situation you have been. No matter what it is and how heinous or gross or whatever you want to talk about, there's people who've been in your exact same spot. But those same people have overcome it with Christ's help and you can too because that's what God does as he sends his Holy Spirit because he paid for you, he invested in you, and he wants you in heaven with him. Amen.